Welcome everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Substantial Life Podcast. Today we have Dr. Luis Mobile with us for an interview about existentialism. So Dr. Mobile is a double PhD. She has a PhD in philosophy and she's, she is a Nietzschean scholar. And then also she has a PhD in literature specializing in English. So we would like to welcome Dr. Mobile with us today. Thank you. It's a privilege being here. So, Luis, today we'll be speaking about existentialism. How would you define existentialism and where do you think it came from? Uh, I would give the following brief um, definition. Existentialism is the philosophy of how the individual attains meaning in an apparently meaningless world. And, and so, what would apparently meaningless world, where did people come to that idea? Well... Existentialism is um, most famously associated with the French existentialism of the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but it's a much broader philosophy um, than just the famous figures of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. But existentialism became very prominent in Europe after the experience of World War II, where the pain and suffering was so disproportionate to the meaning that military action traditionally provided. So um, the existentialists responded to the absolute terror and feeling of disintegration. And they felt that traditional institutions such as the church, as well as academia, just didn't respond, uh, gave a sufficient response to that feeling of disintegration that Europeans experienced. And for this reason, it's very much a European philosophy as opposed to, uh, say, American pragmatism. But it's um, interesting to note that a change of existentialism also migrated to the United States in the 1970s during the Vietnam War. And you'll find that many of the great films which responded to the Vietnam War, such as The Deer Hunter or Full Metal Jacket or especially um, the Francis Ford Coppola's classic film Apocalypse Now has a very strong existentialist tinge. And uh, listeners might be interested to know that existentialism is a very interesting philosophy to think about when approaching film because it is one of the philosophical disciplines which migrated beyond academia. Mm. When we think of something like phenomenology, that's very much an academic discipline. It's something associated with another great existentialist, Martin Heidegger. But Heidegger is very much a philosopher's philosopher. Mm. Um, if listeners are interested in existentialism and phenomenology, don't start with him first. What's very interesting, you first mentioned uh, the meaning that people found in war and how the Second World War was much different. For context, in the wars in the Middle Ages or in the Greek world, or in the Roman world, people found significantly more meaning in war. And it wasn't experienced as, as brutal 
as the Second World War. Well, the Second World War, the countries were trying to build up this idea that you're fighting for your country and it is good. But people's experiences were experience of much more brutality than meaning. And uh, that's very interesting that that surfaced then after the World War. And as far as my knowledge goes, John Paul Sartre and um, some of the other guys who were fundamentally atheist, they did not believe uh, God exists or that it is helpful to believe that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, uh, if we think of traditional literature on warfare, it is said that Western literature began with a poem about war, the Iliad. And I mean, the very first sentence of Virgil's Aeneid is arms and the man I sing. Well, um, while he's not formally an existentialist, Already somebody like George Bernard Shaw's play, Arms and the Man, uh, written in during the First World War, already pointed to the disproportionality between the war that was fought and the immediate experience of soldiers and uh, civilians increased. So there's a gap between the, the immediate experience and the abstract ideal. Mm. And that is pretty much a a late 19th century, early 20th, uh, well, 20th century phenomenon. Because traditionally, um, it was possible to find a great deal of meaning in war. It's difficult for us as, as late moderns to imagine this. But right through the Middle Ages, as you've mentioned, as well as antiquity, uh, war was uh, something meaningful and exciting. If we turn to another great thinker, the psychoanalyst uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, said that Eros, our instinct towards procreation, is mirrored in Thanatos, our desire to annihilate, and those are the great primary forces in, in life. And... For a significant time, um, it was accepted. It was just part of life. Um, You have love and conflict. But the introduction of sophisticated war machinery, the machine gun, the blatant unfairness of um, involving innocent civilians made war a disproportionate experience. And uh, Jean-Paul Sartre ended up in a concentration camp himself, while not persecuted as a Jew. It was certainly because of his communist views. Uh, During that time, he read Heidegger's Being and Time, which is a very solid philosophical work and important for listeners who's interested in thinking about time. And he wrote Being and Nothingness in the original French Etre Lénéant about his experience. And this brings us to the core of existentialism, the experience of the individual self or the, in philosophical parlance, the subject who's overwhelmed by a cosmic order which no longer makes sense. Now, the absolute antithesis to this late modern experience is, of course, the medieval period. If we think about it, the medieval period lasted for the longest time in history, 
from the fall of the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, to the emergence of the Renaissance. And even during the Renaissance, contrary to popular belief, the medieval worldview of a great given cosmological hierarchy with God at the top and the nobles, the, the mercantile classes and the, the peasantry or serf class was, um, it existed for a very long time, the longest solid period in human history. And the reason for that is because it suffered, it, uh, or it embodied an innate desire for order. Even today, it is said that we can handle a great deal of suffering as long as we know what, the, uh, what its meaning or purpose is. Even the uh, thinker Friedrich Nietzsche, who kind of touches on existentialist themes at times, but bear in mind, listeners, that is not isomorphically equivalent to the existentialist movement, said that man can bear almost any kind of pain provided that there's a purpose for it. If we think of the horrible suffering that people experience, say, on the ships used during the voyages of discovery, which was often undertaken under conditions which personally provide me with nightmares, I think, Um, Sometimes I'll be prepared to be poor and homeless in the 21st century rather than to be um, in the narrow confines of a 17th century ship. Even under those conditions, people felt that they were part of a genuinely true cosmological order and that there was purpose to their endeavours And even if they failed, they will be rewarded in the life hereafter. However, this order began to break down in early modernity, and it was a process which continues in our own secular age, which the author Henry James paraphrased as the awkward age. So, Louise, what do you think caused this breakdown in this idea of this order following the Renaissance? Well, the breakdown um, can be ascribed to, to a number of factors. One of the most important ones is the advances made in technology. Now, technology makes our life easier, but it um, provides the following problem. It is something that was obviously man-made. And secondly, it puts a buffer or a, it puts distance between ourselves and the natural God-created order. So we experience ourselves at a considerable distance from given or God-given reality. Um, Then there's the rise of pragmatic philosophies, such as the political pragmatism of Niccolò Machiavelli, 
which could be considered in the uh, words of uh, Michel Foucault, a technology of the self. It places the, the self at, again, at a distance from an integrated cosmological order and it mm. places the self in opposition to the world. So progress alienates man mm. from an immediate cosmological order. Now, the concept alienation is very interesting because this is where existentialism overlaps with Marxism. It is one of the classic words in Marxism, the notion that we're alienated, I'm speaking now purely in secular terms, alienated from an original position of plenitude, and then we move uh, towards an unnatural or artificial world which exists at a distance from what we ought to be. Now, another term that's associated with this is uh, soteriology, coming from the Greek soter, and logos, it's the, the study of that which went out, if we could put it in um, the most basic uh, sense of the word. It's the study of how things change from what it ought to be. The original Christian narrative is, of course, the fall. But existentialism emerged as a response to that sense of alienation and particularly existential Marxism tried to provide a kind of solution, a practical solution to that sense of alienation. It tried to bridge the gap. It's very interesting that what you're mentioning about how technology and progress has alienated or that we have this experience that it has alienated us from nature. Um, we live in cubes and triangles and circles. You can almost say the geometers have taken over the world. I mean, we're looking at cubes and the whole world that we experience is man-made. You know, the shows we watch is man-made, the things we listen or We don't listen to birds or to the rustling of water, but to some artificial music that's not even made by instruments anymore. And it's, can, it's very interesting how we don't often realize how that affects our even view of God. Because you can't see design in a universe that is only designed by people. Exactly. We, in the philosophy of technology, there's this very interesting idea of how a person who designs a technology both designs the technology and therefore influences the material world and impinges some idea on it. But the effect of that is to change yourself as well. Because we become a certain type of being by living in a world that we have influenced, as Job said. So in, in that sense, we can see it also regarding our beliefs in God to know whether or not God exists. Yeah, how we change the world can have an influence on how our perspectives about social interaction, about family life. For example, what Louise mentioned regarding this idea of a hierarchy when you have a monarchical hierarchy that is a man-made construct to a large extent and how that created the order that pervaded the Middle Ages. 
And when that goes away, when challenged by certain dem democratic systems, then it might be a little bit more difficult. Now, Louise, what was the solution that the existentialists put forth towards this alienation that they spoke of? Okay, um, it has to be mentioned that all existentialists are not the same. And first, we have to distinguish between Christian existentialism. In fact, existentialism in its modern sense of the word, when this is when the, the term is not expanded upon to the absurd extent that even somebody like Socrates is considered to be an existentialist. But the existentialist will usually taken to be the first existentialist is Søren Kierkegaard. That is the correct pronunciation of the Danish. While it looks like Kierkegaard, it's actually Kierkegaard. But his solution as a thinker very much in the Protestant um, tradition is to try and regain that authentic relationship with God. And we'll say a bit about him later on, I presume, but uh, to continue with your more stereotypical existentialist, the solutions that existentialists usually provide is to fall back upon the human self or subject that we have to create meaning for ourselves. Now, we have to distinguish between the existentialist here and the post-structuralist who deny the possibility of meaning altogether because the existentialists uphold the possibility of, of meaning and they have a certain faith in the rational subject. And... The historically, the solution that existentialists give is to turn to human relationships and new political orders, to turn to human unity as an answer. Now, we find a trace of this in the famous poem by Matthew Arnold, written in 1900, Dover Beach, where a speaker stands on the white cliffs of Dover in England um, and he watches across the sea to the lights of Calais in France and he reflects upon how the sea withdraws and expands again and he focuses specifically on the withdrawal, it's low tide I presume, where and he says that the sea of faith is withdrawing and while it was once as rich as the sea of Greek mythology, he refers to Sophocles and the Aegean, but it's now withdrawing and he is only hearing its melancholy whine. And then he turns, the speaker turns to the beloved standing next to him and he makes a plea that they have to find meaning in their love. And this is kind of the popular approach to existentialism, that you have to find uh, meaning in love and human relationships. This manifested itself politically during the 1960s in figures like Sartre and de Beauvoir, who turned to Marxism as an idea of human solidarity. 
But as we all know, Sartre de Beauvoir, I think Sartre more so than de Beauvoir, uh, because as Nietzsche says, that uh, women tend to be more skeptical by in, in nature. Uh, it is, we know, it's a rather naive solution. And I've always been struck by the naivety of um, the visit of the, the famous visit of de Beauvoir and Sartre to Cuba. I mean, if you have to turn to Cuba to find meaning, then the, you can just as well abandon all hope. Abandon all hope, all you enter Cuba. But that is a... Given their experience, they were looking for an alternative. But the mistake, and this is the one major mistake that existentialists make, is that and uh, the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, who also experienced World War II, she escaped Auschwitz by a hairbreadth and only because she chose to act, who did not embrace, and she didn't embrace existentialism, she said that the world of human relationships is precisely your most unreliable domain of life. Humans are capricious, they're emotional, they untrustworthy, they complex. And if you want political stability, you have to turn to admittedly imperfect institutions, but you have to look at institutions in um, of the public sphere. Basically saying boring things like legal legal system, liberal democracy and the like. But those things may not be able to create personal meaning, but that's the best you're going to get in terms of political stability. But we're talking about meaning. Sartre and de Beauvoir would say that this amounts, it may work in practice, but it doesn't have the capacity to, um, to give us meaning, and that may be true. But it, I think more than 70 years after Sartre and de Beauvoir, we could say that the field of intra-human relationships are even more uncertain. When we look at developments of physics and, and even new developments such as quantum biology and the like, we find that evidence for something like a designer hypothesis become more and more possible. So I would suggest to people who find this existentialist anxiety to look at the renewed hope that's possible in the Christian faith. But I would just like to say a couple of things, uh, add a couple of things to this, uh, what may be called the ideology of intimacy, of the or the intimate that we find that's so prevalent today. And Many people, also in South Africa, think that the problems and such what we find in South Africa can be solved if only we reach out enough, we talk enough, and so on. And that's kind of an existentialist move. We can solve everything between humans. But that is kind of like a cop-out. I mean, Christians and people, all people of faith also experience relationships, emotions, and the like. You don't have to choose. 
it's not an alternative. The existentialists, like so many late modern philosophers, make the mistake of taking a slice out of traditional Christian life and present it as an alternative. But a slice of a pizza is not an alternative to a pizza. You just lose the rest of the pizza. And this is why, one of the reasons why existentialism, oddly enough, is no longer as prevalent as it used to be in academic philosophical departments. If you wish to do proper continental philosophy and really study further, and on that note, you have to be very careful as to which department you select, I would, for one, advise you to stay away from your major state universities, is that existentialism, while some existentialist writings are still widely studied, um, in particular Sartre's autobiography, De Beauvoir's novels, and so on, they're appreciated today more in literature departments than in philosophy departments, where continental philosophy is practiced, you find a greater emphasis on existential phenomenology. And as I said, phenomenology is a is almost scientific. It's a proper study of how we form things like contexts. How do we experience objects in space? How do we experience time and the like? So existentialism um, has, as I've said, has migrated beyond academia. And it's like Marxism. Uh, Marxism and and existentialism are kind of uh, like figures from slasher movies. Freddy or, um, or Jason or Mike Myers, they just come back. They keep coming back. But... Today, as you you both know, people turn again to Marxism and also to this relationship philosophy in an attempt to find meaning. But one of the problems is that they treat, they don't take existentialism at, at its words and they treat it as if existentialism and Marxism provide a ready made solution. Whereas even Christianity doesn't do that. You have to be involved in your faith. But it at least gives you a, a full, comprehensive worldview. Louise, speaking about being involved with your faith, many would characterize critical theory as a religion at this point. Because you spoke about de Beauvoir's work and one of the main works read in feminist literature is her work on the second sex what do you think is the effect of existentialism and to what extent does critical theory hold to a form of existentialism specifically in in feminist studies okay that's a very important question now first we have to remember there's just a very prosaic dimension first to the second sex. Um, when we think of the famous sentence 
coming from that, uh, derived from that text, uh, which, according to which uh, de Beauvoir says that woman is not born, she becomes one. Now, the term woman in that context uh, refers to woman's legal status. And you have to remember that this was a written during the Second World War, and that even before that in France, the legal status of women was very much the additional, the addendum, the second uh, sex. For example, women couldn't vote, they couldn't uh, even open a bank account without the husband's permission. So she was referring to the fact that all humans are born with infinite possibilities. But as a girl grows up into womanhood, she becomes this diminished thing, which doesn't have equal recognition with men. So in this sense, and I think this is the legitimate side to feminism and existentialism, the experience of a person, if you were a thinking person during those times, you would have been unhappy. And I think any fair person, any reasonable Christian would accept this is an unjust situation. We think, uh, for example, even in the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan uh, woman, we have the, if we think of it non-theologically, it's the exchange between two thinking adults. It isn't the experience of a, uh, a second sex that we find there. But there's um, also the real existentialist dimension or the um, you've asked about critical theory now. Critical theory has a, an alarming, thoughtless dimension to it. Whereas existentialists at least acknowledge that meaning isn't ready-made, you have to look for it and work at it, which is a point, um, um, a point to them. Critical theory gives us... Um, a quick instant recipe. It's like the cup of soup of, of philosophy. And it gives us a, an instant answer to life's most complicated questions. Critical theory in its current form, perhaps we can do another episode when we discuss the proper critical theorists like Thuler Adorno and uh, Max Horkheimer, and I assume you're not referring to those guys now. We're talking about uh, contemporary critical theory. Critical theory is different from existentialism, as I've said, in that existentialism takes into account the complexity of the human experience and how easily it falls into absurdity. And again, that is a point um, in their favor. They, they don't give you quick solutions. And... Christians and existentialists can agree that the meaning of life is a very grand question. 
it's the ultimate question you can ask. And I think this is what you guys are exploring in your podcast. But contemporary critical theory gives you instant answers. And the answer is this narrative. That the meaning of life is just about finding uh, social justice. And the um, how to find it is pretty obvious. The a group of evil white patriarchal men just decided to to find power and oppress anybody else. Once you get rid of them, everything will be will be set right. And we all know things are not that simple. That is why uh, we could say that social justice warriors can be compared to say. Well, um, I don't want to uh, use an unfavorable comparison, but it would be saying like listening to one episode of a podcast and saying, right, this answers every question I might possibly have for the rest of my life. But um, with respect to Simone de Beauvoir, there was an element of social justice um, which pertained to her work. She wanted social change and she certainly found it. And we think of the France today is very different from uh, the one of the 1950s. Well, for one, people no longer dress as elegantly. But um, de Beauvoir's legitimate pose was quickly superseded by different questions. So I would say the social justice warrior movement, one of the points of critique one could bring to them is precisely their existential shallowness. It doesn't have an existentialist element to it. Um, it they have a shallow oppositional language of intense good and evil. And even in Christianity that works with an, the opposition between God and Satan, knows that the world is extremely complex. It's not something that can be explained in simple binary oppositions. While the social justice warrior uh, movement likes to pride themselves on the acceptance of non-binary people, they actually work with, uh, with very shallow and very narrow um, oppositional binaries. And what, uh, while the existentialists, like even Jean-Paul Sartre, thought about human evil in a very intense way, for them the evil is just a label you have to stick on some people. It's not a critical reflection of what it means to be a human being who is thrown or is born into a set of circumstances he didn't choose. For the social justice warriors, and I've pointed this out many times before, and they work, they go as far as to say that the oppressor and the oppressed work according to entirely different metaphysical systems. An oppressor has free will, whereas the oppressed are products of their circumstances. So the existentialists at least engage genuine philosophical questions, including free will. And an interesting feature is that they radicalized free will. 
In fact, you are so free that you're obliged to make choices all the time, which is a very interesting question, um, position to take. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard actually said that choice is where eternity and time meet. So for him, as a Christian, our freedom was a fundamental part of our image of God. And so he was almost saying a person who is not choosing is sinning, almost. Exactly. So that's a... And, and I think this idea of freedom being a fundamental part of human dignity. Yes. I actually think that's why it is good to punish a man for his crime. Because you are acknowledging his freedom and the consequences of his freedom. Absolutely. And it's also a theme that, um, um, that Albert Camus, who's one of your more accessible existentialists, um, wrote about in L'Estranger or The Stranger, where a man owns his deeds. But speaking of Albert Camus, um, I just wanted to say something about that, uh, that um, circle of existentialists. When you think of even of the stereotypical philosopher, you think about the existentialists, serious people, mostly dressed in black, who sit in a French cafe on the boulevard Saint-Germain smoking. Today, this would be rather difficult, given the smoking bans of our own time. But and these existentials, a famous group of existentials, were Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Simone de Beauvoir, um, but also a very interesting thinker, um, but he's more of a phenomenologist, Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And perhaps we can talk about him on a later occasion. Because while most of the um, existentialists and indeed most of philosophy have just thought about the mind, Meloponti uh, is unique in that he's one of the few thinkers who really thought about what it meant to be embodied. And he's an important thinker, particularly for our own age, um, which features things like artificial intelligence. And um, you can counter a great many claims of made by proponents of artificial intelligence by returning to the link between the body and the mind. But Camille is very interesting in that he's one of the few philosophers who really lived his philosophy, because regrettably we know that many philosophers say one thing and do another, very much like politicians do. But um, Camus really took his philosophy seriously. And when the reports about the atrocities in the Soviet Union began to, to reach the West, um, he really thought about whether he was on the right, he was following the right path. And he revisited his earlier thought. And eventually he confronted Sartre and he said that we can no longer support Marxism. Now, Sartre, of course, was, was pretty angry and they had a massive fallout. But what isn't so widely known is that Camille left the existentialists and um, went on his own. And he became friends with a Christian pastor 
And we know for two years at least he studied the Bible very intensely. And he, we know that he arranged to be baptized again a week before he went on vacation with this pastor and his family. But we know that uh, the, they all died in a car accident during this trip. Um, unfortunately, um, Camille's final works were lost in um, the fire, uh, fireball of the accident, but it's highly likely that Camille chose to become a Christian again. Well, it's interesting to note that uh, for this he was shunned just as uh, G.S. Eliot was alienated uh, from um, the Bloomsbury group um, after his conversion um, to the um, Anglican Church. Thank you very much, Louise. Um, if you have any final thoughts that you would want to give to our listeners, um, I think this existentialist experience, this experience that life can sometimes feel very meaningless, I think that's universal. I yes, mean, especially for teenagers. Yes. <laughs> um, what encouragement would you give to our listeners? Well, I would give the following encouragement, also speaking from personal experience. First of all, I would say that many um, of you may feel terribly lonely, but often, or that you don't fit in, but often that experience is not an existential crisis, it's simply the experience of boredom. We, um, we sometimes forget among this massive flux of entertainment just to be really involved with the world. It may sound like a very silly thing to say, but get in touch with nature again. It's very, very difficult to be in the beauty of nature and be truly unhappy. It is, secondly, accept that human relationships are always going to fall short. Even the people who love you most will never understand you directly. People aren't mind readers. And if we were, things would be genuinely boring. Uh, we would have no need for language. We would have no need for literature. Um, look towards quality material. Read the great books. Find a variety of people. Attempt a variety of activities. Happiness, as Aristotle said, is finding a place where you belong. For those of you who experience a crisis of faith, who feel that the church is failing you, or you're just bored by services who are as dry as sawdust, the problem may not be the Christian faith, but simply the wrong, the wrong church. There are plenty of churches. Experiment with churches. Talk about different kinds of Christians. Read different kinds of Christian authors. Speak to different experts. Experiment. But I would advise you, um, if you are experiencing a crisis of faith, um, it's 
highly likely, I would say 99% sure, is more down to your personal circumstances than the content of the faith. So, as the Bible commands us to do, look for truth. Because it's a fantastic journey. And I guarantee you, if you um, in, um, undertake this adventure, you will find the truth not at the bottom of a glass, but in the good book itself. So return to it.